Keep Talking with Greg. Welcome back. Uh, is Bruce Alderman, uh, one of my favorite people, is back on the show. Uh, and he has been willing to be subjected to the special iQuad edition. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, welcome, Bruce. How you doing? Thank you, Greg. Yeah, happy to be here. Looking forward to it. Thanks, man. Um, so some of you may know that we uh, walked uh, John Verbeke through part one of this sort of matrix. Uh, and now I want to, um, I've adjusted a little, I, I do dove into this thing. My goal, as I told Bruce right before we hit record, um, is to gain his depth and wisdom and perspective on this thing. Uh, I think there's some real value here, but I'm very deep into it and I'm not really sure uh, what to make of it. Uh, so I'm going to subject Bruce to the associations and see how he metabolizes them and what he spits back. <laughs> okay. All um, on one cup of coffee. I'll do my best. <laughs> right. Well, we'll break it up. You know, this is actually, you know, uh, so just a background. All right. So I'm going to give a little bit of background uh, and then so for me, uh, the what we're going to then explore then is the iQuad coin. You know, people, if you're watching this thing, it's th this thing. I mailed Bruce one, so you should have one. Um, and it, it's one of the three sort of real pieces of our architecture of ideas that you talk really is taking shape around. Um, and the relationship between the three ideas is key. We'll be dialoguing some about that, but fundamentally, the three ideas are the coin. Um, which, which is about the subjective, individual subjective experience of being. So me as Greg and Bruce as Bruce, as phenomenological agents in the world, as human persons. And we'll talk about what that is. So it's a placeholder for that. Um, and then the tree is a frame for scientific ontology, a natural behavioral science ontology uh, that affords a particular third-person empirical way of describing the world. Um, and my argument is, is that uh, when we built physics through modern science, we never really figured out a way to get the third person physical view and the first person phenomenological view in proper right relation. Uh, and much of you talk is about that and much of what the coin and tree are about that. Uh, and then ultimately it's getting right relationship to that through. So phenomenological, physical isness. And then uh, fundamentally down the road, but I won't be talking too much about that this time, to then orient ultimately toward wisdom. Um, so the vision for you talk is a clear articulation from three points, a science point, a subjective phenomenological point, and ultimately a collective wisdom point um, to then enter into from those various uh, sort of objectivity, subjectivity, intersubjectivity, frames of reference, and then have a consilient, coherent, intelligible, plausible um, frame of reference. That's the goal. Sounds good. So, okay. Uh, so I'm going to do, so the iQuad editions require PowerPoint, so they are visual. So I'm going to share my screen real fast and just give you, I'm going to start, I didn't send you actually this part. I built this up just to, uh, I'm going to start with just some of the key pieces that set the background, then we'll drive in, drop into the first part, which I went over with John. While you're pulling that up, are you familiar with William Desmond? I've and heard of William Desmond, but no, uh, what's uh, helped me with that? He's a theologian, but also a philosopher. He, he, his theology is really deep enough that it, it uh, can be you know, read as philosophy, regardless of your theological beliefs. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And he talks about 
uh, being from a number of different perspectives. But one of the mm -hmm. fundamental ones, which I've appreciated for the, the play, is he calls it the idiocy of being. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, non-philosophically, you might take it one way, but philosophically, he is looking at that, that um, ideographic um, and that, that, that singularity and the uniqueness of each being um, in, in unfolding the dimensions of, of human living. So great. That, that's yeah. where he starts is the idiocy of being. Perfect. Uh, yeah. And that's a really, one of the things that I've come to appreciate, which I always intuited, but not, I don't know that I appreciated all the layers of it, um, especially until recently. It's just the recognition of how inadequate the language game of science is for the ideographic subjective. I always knew that it was difficult at the level of the subjective, you know, how do you do science of consciousness? And I always knew it was about general nomenthetic rather than ideographic. But if you actually put ideographic and subjective together, okay, which is of course our normal position of being in the world as idiots, <laughs> right? Um, but anyway, that's our normal position of being in the world, trying to get along as talking apes in our own unique, you know, epistemological portal. Science is unbelievably bad at that position. I mean, this language game is fundamentally blind to that. Um, and then you get philosophers, modernist philosophers, you know, with the epiphenomenological argument, oh, hey, it's just our, it's really just a, an idea that we see things and feel things. It, it's really just the brain doing that and all of that. The stupidity of that argument, of course, is that obviously we, you and I in this conversation, our subjectivities are mediating and moderating everything that we're doing. <laughs> So if I ask you, hey, how you're doing? I tell you, hey, Bruce, you know, I've had some back pain that scared me. Well, that's not my brain talking to your brain. That's my subjectivity talking to your subjectivity. Right. The idea that that's epiphenomenal. You have to interpret my words. You don't interpret my brain. <laughs> you know, so it's like, you don't know what my brain looks like and I don't know what your brain looks like. Um, so our whole embodied way of being is what everyone else responds. So because those are the, so when you think behaviorally, the world becomes much more apparent that you don't reduce it to it. Um, atoms. Uh, anyway, the, the, the bottom line is, is that this, we clearly, in my estimation, or my philosophy of science, we can appreciate the normal pow enormous power of a modern scientific view, but we absolutely need to appreciate that it has design blind spots. That's what affords it much of its power is because it, it fundamentally moves you out from your subjective idiosyncratic bias view. But at the same time, if it does that by design, we can't then go ahead and say, oh, well, because we build in the idea that it can't speak to this, then this must not matter. <laughs> it's like, no, that's, that is not what follows. Um, what we need then is a placeholder and a proper relation between ideographic subjectivity and uh, you know, objectivity, at least as revealed and positioned by the epistemology of modern empirical natural science. And right. it's that, that's the relation. And I argue with the enlightenment gap, we just have not figured out clearly uh, the proper uh, descriptive metaphysical systems and frameworks that afford us the synergy between those. That's mind-body problem and all the craziness about what is consciousness and everything else. So, so that's the context for what this is. is basically, it's designed to address a particular problem. Um, and uh, the, the I-quad coin, fundamentally, the, the I-quad side of the coin uh, is a symbol that then affords a identity connection uh, between the individual as a speaking, feeling, narrating self-ego in the world, unique, idiosyncratic, and then to create an identity matrix so that they can see themselves in the world 
and then bridge that to third person empirical science ultimately, and also bridge it to at least one wisdom tradition, the garden, as, and because it's an argument that's a lots of different potential paths to wisdom, but the garden that affords a particular path to wisdom. And then that would say, hey, there's really the first opportunity for um, a physics, phenomenology, subjectivity, wisdom uh, frame that is as is, is deep into physical science as you can get, is clear about modern psychological natural sciences, and then bridges to reasonable uh, wisdom, theological, reflective frames. So that's the, that's the basic deal. To understand the ultimate package, and like I said, we're not gonna get all this, but and you've already been subjected to some of this. <laughs> I use that in multiple meanings. <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, and I actually, as I walked you through that time, I hadn't walked it through in a while. This, we just, for, you know, I walked Bruce, I don't know, what was it, six months ago or whatever. Um, I tried to walk you through what's called the iQuad path. I realized even when I was doing that, it was a little clunky. I built the iQuad path in 2017. It's a thing called the iQuad path, and I was walking you through that. Um, and the whole, the whole matrix of understanding cuts back and requires some basic um, frames. Uh, so four different pieces of, uh, that are key, and we'll be focused on this first one uh, today, uh, but it's important to know the others as we dive into that. So the first frame that's crucial is to know iQuad, and it means two things or create an uh, adjacency between them, and, and I'll be exploring that today. One is a simple meaning of math in mathematics, which is I as the imaginary number. Um, and, you know, so you have to have some, a little knowledge of what I is as an imaginary number of square root of negative one. Square root of the negative one is raised to the fourth power, that equals one. Okay, so it's that relation, uh, I, I quad as I to the fourth, which also equals one. And then it's that relation gets fused uh, with sort of the metaphysics of adjacency or whatever, the framework of association, a prepositional looping with what I'll call the identity function. So that's the first uh, frame. And that's what I'll be talking mostly with you about today. But it is crucial to understand the root of this because um, we're sort of like going backwards in time, meaning that um, we're starting with where it is and then going back to its origins. But it's important to know the origins. The origins of this frame uh, have date back to two, for me, date back to 2001. Okay. That's where the origins are. Uh, to understand some of the deep origins, you need. Uh, some basic background on what's called the Euler identity. It's a mathematical equation um, called the Euler identity. I'm not going to be explaining the Euler identity. I just am tagging it here to say there is a deep, ultimately a deep connection with the Euler identity, which is a special case of the Euler formula. Okay. Uh, and no, there's not going to be any tests <laughs> about what these are, how to apply them. Um, but there is a deep ultimate connection between this, this argument uh, and the I-quad and human identity function, the, the Euler identity and Euler formula. Um, and the reason is because in 2001, uh, the history of this whole idea stems to 2001 when I stumbled across what I originally called the Henricus equivalency. Okay? The Henricus equivalency is this weird formula that says two pi I F equals one. Okay? So it's those four things. There's an identity function, the Euler identity, Euler formula, and the equivalency. And it's the interrelationship at the deep end that affords the matrix that I'm trying to help people see ultimately. Were you, I think you're muted there if you wanna. 
apologize. Yeah, please continue. Okay. To do. Yeah. No, sure. All right. Okay. Okay. Um, with this frame, okay, what I'm attempting to do is I'm building a metaphysical system, okay, meaning the set of concepts and categories that afford an opportunity for us to that first person and third person empiricism. Third person empiricism defined in relationship to the epistemology of modern natural science. First person empiricism de defined in relationship to an everyday position of a human person. And then create a structure that affords a logos, a logical picture of the world, uh, which then can be employed to achieve right relationship between what is and what ought to be. That's the overall, and that becomes the I quad path to wisdom energy is the energy of what is and the wisdom of what ought to be and getting one's subjective frame in proper relationship to that. So that's, that's the goal of this thing um, that I'm after. Okay. Um, and part of the, I won't get into this, but just on the center of the tree of life is that yellow flower. Okay. Uh, the yellow flower is, an, is the me flower and that stands for metaphysical empiricism. Um, and the big me in the center is an overarching large scale system of justification that organizes data like science would be a big me. And the little me's are individuals that have belief concepts, categories, their own metaphysical systems and their own first person experience of being in the world. And so the me flower is about, hey, can we build a metaphysical system that affords a proper bridging between first person phenomenology and each individual idiosyncratic and third person uh, scientific ontology um, and, and any other number of cases. So it's that network and matrix that I'm definitely after. Yeah, I really appreciate that. I relate the adjacency of the metaphysics and empiricism to the overall concern with post-metaphysics from totally. you know um, modern and postmodern project forward. And really it's, post-metaphysical in that it will always try to interrelate the metaphysical frame with empirical um, you know, grounding and also have a flexibility that it can be meta-metaphysical in a way that it could explore multiple metaphysical framings uh, for their uh, fitness with the empirical findings. Totally. Yeah, that's great. And indeed, if there's a Diagram that I've seen that's close to what I'm meaning here. It's related to the diagram you shared with me, the ontology, uh, epistemology, ontic, epistemic, yin-yang. I can't recall exactly who it was that, uh, but you showed me that yin-yang representation. And that's got a lot of deep overlap in terms of just mapping concepts. In fact, I would say sort of ontic, ontology, epistemic, epistemology would fall right under metaphysics and that, that interacting relationship between known and real versus knower and how we know processes is, is great. So you and I share that uh, very similar, I think, connection on this one. Great. Yeah, and for the record, that's Joel Morrison who came up ah, with that. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Great. Okay. Um, so, okay, so the first thing then is just uh, getting back to the I-Quad and just for people who are listening so that they know uh, what it is and if it's a review. Um, one of the things then of the I quad is I to the fourth, and I to the fourth is a symbol for the complex uh, unit circle. A complex unit circle is a math, math, my son's a math major, he just took a class in complex numbers, okay? And this is the first thing you learn in complex numbers, um, which is the complex number plane. The complex number plane 
um, is the idea that you have a real number plane. So one, two, three uh, on the positive and then the negative one, two, three real numbers. And then orthogonally on the X, on the Y axis, you have I, one I, two I, three I, and then negative I, um, negative one, two, three I. Okay, so the complex number plane uh, is then considered a real by imaginary plane with the axes uh, defined as such. Complex numbers are when you have a real number plus an imaginary number. So if you had three plus two I, that would be a place on the complex plane. Um, a useful geographic uh, frame on understanding this complex number plane is the unit circle or complex unit circle. A standard unit circle just has a radius of one. Complex unit circle is when you have this uh, complex plane axis of real by imaginary. Um, and then the unit circle is going around, if you say start at i, uh, if you multiply i, which is the square root of negative one times itself, by definition, uh, i squared then is negative one. And then if you multiply i to that, you get negative i. And then if you multiply uh, to the fourth, you get one. And that creates the whole looping circle. And the I quad is a, uh, at a mathematical grid level, the I quad is, uh, represents this uh, equivalency and it represents the unit circle on the complex plane. Uh, at the level of adjacency, of concepts of adjacency, it's interesting that it affords us in a mathematical sense at least, uh, and there are big debates about the way to think about these terms, uh, but notice that we now have at our disposal on this as sort of a real, imaginary and complex sort of plane uh, to play around with. And by playing around with that, if we're doing it in relationship to subjectivity, you can say, hey, I've got my imagined world. There's the real world out there. There is some sort of interplay between them. It's <laughs> a knower known relation. Um, there are a lot of different ways that you can loosely play with that by association. Um, but that's some of the things that the iQuad does is it affords loose associations. Uh, and then to create met, uh, networks of understanding. Um, and that's one of the things I think is really exciting about it. It's also complicated because when to apply those networks, it's not always easy and what they mean. Um, but this is just a, a frame on what the I quad symbolizes. Um, the second thing is the shape of the coin. Uh, and the shape of the coin is in, in H, uh, which stands for the human. And then if you rotate the coin, this rotation, you turn it on its side and that becomes I, and then that's identity. So, and this is the human identity function or the human identification matrix. Uh, if you listen to John Berbeke, he, he gives a great articulation of sort of identification. Uh, the concept of identification, like if we put it into sort of embodied ways of being is that we are constantly building models uh, of ourselves and the world uh, and engaged in really an identification matrix of ourselves, who we are. I'm Greg, what the world is, this is a desk, this is a chair, this chair is for sitting. Um, so I immediately create an identification matrix of what entities are and what they afford me, what I am and what my role is. Um, so I am here to share with you this iQuad coin. You're here to listen and serve as a Dialogos interlocutor partner, and we are here to try to explore this. So that creates the identification matrix. We are doing this subconsciously all the time. That's in fact what we're doing is we're building models of self and world uh, implicitly, 
and then acting on those models. Uh, if you take a basic brain processing view, we're trying to reduce surprise. So we're creating models. We're trying to create identification of our models with the world, how we act with them. When we get surprised, we update our models. Um, and so what this basically says is, hey, here's the identity. Here you are. And then here is the identification matrix. Uh, and that's what it represents. Uh, and that should be very, as a starting point, that should be pretty consistent with people. Oh, yeah, I can see that. I have a model of me. I see the world. I'm mapping uh, the self-world relation. Have you explored any intersections of this with something like Lacan's um, Borromean knot with the interplay of the real and the imaginary and yeah. symbolic? Only a little bit. Uh, Cadell Last is on the intellectual deep web uh, and his work and uh, Bard's work pointed me in that direction. Uh, I got some into that, saw a couple of videos on Lacan um, and have that as flagged as something I should do a deep dive in. It's interesting now, in fact, actually I'll pause here because I want to share this with you also, is because I am in the, you know, the, the, over the last five years, the transition of into Utah and the garden has opened me up into a wide variety of different perspectives. Whereas before, I think I was more narrowly critical of a lot of perspectives. When I first encountered Lacan, I was like, I can't, who can read this shit? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I was like, more psychoanalytic psychobabble, hell. Um, I, and, you know, that I realized that's def definitely premature um, relative to his level of sophistication. Um, another exact similar thing, that's why I stopped and share it with you, um, is uh, have you read A Greater Psychology, the work of Sri Aurobindo? By any chance, uh, it's a or that's put together by a clinical psychologist who followed his work. But it basically, anyway, it chronicles Sri Aurobindo's um, approach to psychology, which I would imagine you have some some familiarity with, given that he was the yogi who really inspired lots of Wilbur's work. Yes, it's been a lot of years since I looked at that book, but I, I read it maybe, yeah, maybe fifteen years ago or something like that. It's probably something I should go back to and look at again. Well, it's really actually just a, at a, I was really taken aback by reading it this time. Uh, I got into it, read it in a couple of days. Um, so 10 years ago, when I get it, I, ha I just happened upon it. I knew that Wilbur was interested in Sharia Arbundu. I'd come back around to Wilbur and been okay, but I opened up the book and it's just sort of like, I can't do anything with it. It's so abstract. Um, and, and then the terminology of, you know, there's what's called supermind and overmind that he's trying to reach in this regard when I first um, encountered that. And, and I basically, I read through 30 pages, whatever, put it away. This time I read it, it's like, oh my God, I can follow this completely. And you know, so hmm. that's a really interesting difference. And what, so just to give you sort of now the frame of reference that I have is like, oh, what I'm trying to do with, through you talk is build the exterior psychological scientific view. Okay. So like you have to be grounded in the behavioral position from the exterior to understand mental so that you film something and say, hey, I understand this is what's happening from the outside, okay? And then the challenge is to deal with the inner mind, all right? And then to deal with whatever waking consciousness and then whatever transcendent states are and whatever secondarily. The yogi, yogic uh, science is essentially the exact inverse of that. It just, it drops into what I would call mind two as waking consciousness from a perspective and then utilizes meditation to expand it above and beyond, below. Mm -hmm. uh, and, and then, and what he comes to is body, 
down into the body and then into vital, which would be the biological existence. Okay. Then there's deep vital, like in your gut and your loins, feeding and fucking that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then you go up into heart, basically. I didn't always use that term, but essentially you move in and then, uh, you know, expand into normal human mentality. And then you're mm-hmm. normally dealing with, oh, you know, God, I got to get money. <laughs> I don't want to get laid. I'm, I'm going to do this. Work. I mean, that, you know, that's what most people live in. Right. And then the yoga tradition is about seeing that and then expanding past the egoic concerns of justifying why the self matters in, our, in its own particular real world. And then he expands into the various layers of mind getting to overmind, which essentially is what the idea of the garden is. Okay, so mm-hmm. the garden is the idea of, hey, we'd have a philosophy that would afford overmind. And then supermind is my iconic for that is just the elephant sun god, the ultimate mm-hmm. divinity of goodness. You know, you're Mount Sophia, you know, whatever. It's so it's sort of be like, and so to watch him basically have this layering of down, back down to the energy, into matter, into the body, into the vital mind, into justifying mind. And then for the expanse of enlightenment and over and, and supermind, it's like, oh, <laughs> it's, like, it's like, oh, he went a different way and then expanded this. And I can now see that. That's really, to me, that's like, a, I don't know. I felt very different reading it in, in that regard. I was, it was fascinating to see the transformation. Um, so I just figured I would share that with you as a, given no, that your true. transpersonal psychological history, I'm waking up. <laughs> that's very cool it seems like you know you've you found it basically kind of like the the mirror image okay. of what you were doing um you know following yep. a, the same track from a different side of the mountain in a way so totally and that's exactly the whole hope here is that there's an opportunity i you know i got trained in third person science empiricism that's what that's what my you know in a hard-nosed sort of way then i saw how broken and ineffectual that was but i kept that as a sort of needed but then I evolved into, and now I can see my old modernist view of that. It's like, ah, oh, you don't know what the fuck you're talking about. But it's unbelievably narrow in some ways and constricted because it already pre-determines um, that you can't look in terms of expanding waking consciousness because you don't even know how to talk about it from a person. <laughs> Let me look at Watson. Man. He basically said, I'll pretend it doesn't even exist. I mean, it's absurd, you know? Um, but then now it's like now that I grew out of that and then found flipped over and sort of orient toward wisdom. And then you expand the consciousness beyond trans egoic functioning and then have visions and then experience oneness all the way back down to energy and then feel the divine shining light of rays on that. I mean, and then realize that. And then he's like, well, is that Nirvana or is that Atman or, you know, and he bounces back and forth. And it's like, well, OK, yeah, we can be sort of agnostic about it. But the idea that our human soul is potentially oriented towards that seems mm-hmm. now to be absolutely, I mean, we should have that be, that's scientifically clear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's the, and that's what material science just doesn't even know how to talk about, yet alone discover. Right, right. You know? Yeah, um, I think I shared with you a rather esoteric Dzogchen text, and I'm imagining on first reading, it probably also is a bunch of opaque gobbledygook that's not grounded and doesn't have any clear reference and it's like i can't go past a few pages in this i had that experience of sharing that same text with a philosophy of science professor Mm -hmm. who wondered how i walked into his class out of india and was acing all of his philosophy of science um tests and questions and none of the scientists were and for me i can see the connection 
But for him, the language game was just far too different to really penetrate. Totally. Um, yeah. Totally. But, but it's exciting that there is actually that degree of, of resonance and accord um, once you crack some of the language codes. Right. That's right. right. That's right. And that's why I think our projects here, my project with John, you, your project with Brenda over to Bard and all these, this emerging project of sort of a post-integral metaphysical frame that getting systems to talk to each other really is. And now if these things weave together and with this level of specificity and clarity, the ground will be built for uh, you know, a genuine transition, you know, uh, because the language systems will afford enough coherence and intelligibility and be so obviously superior to the broken, chaotic, fragmented pluralism of before. That's the, that, you know, that's a big deal. That's, that's essentially, to me, if there's, if the crucial piece of if we're going to live the back half of the century without a meaning mental health and environmental disastrous crisis, it is, that's a required piece of the puzzle. And it's cool to see it potentially coming online. Definitely, and that's that's a, a worthy horizon to be heading towards. Amen, brother. You know, yeah. better <laughs> it's better than sitting in the bed in despair. <laughs> so at least that's my justification for getting out. <laughs> All right. Um, so so we have the human identity function, um, and so we talked about that, and then very. So then the the Euler identity. Uh, Leonard Euler is one of the great mathematicians of all time. It's 1748. Um, he uh, basically publishes this. There's questions whether other people could have derived it before him. But anyway, this is called the Euler identity. It's E, which is this natural log constant, um, raised to I uh, times pi. You will see this in different orders. It doesn't matter. Uh, it doesn't matter whether it's I first or pi first. Uh, plus one equals zero. And that's the, uh, I'm not going to say much more than that, other than say it is when people ask and look empirically, uh, ask mathematicians, what's the most beautiful equation in mathemat mathematics? This is by far the one that wins the most uh, votes, um, which is interesting. Um, and uh, it gets some significant attention in culture. Uh, it shows up in The Simpsons, I think three different times. Uh, and therefore uh, it's been, if it shows up in The Simpsons in three different times, uh, there's a video, mathologer video that, you know, uh, delineates this formula so that even Homer Simpson can understand it, or at least that's the goal. Um, so there is a way to understand just ba basically what this means and how these things connect together. Um, and and I did not know, and this is, this is an important point, I built the equivalency in 2001, and it's crucial to understand. Now, most people would say this as a total, the, the right initial interpretation, well, you're fucking quack, you don't know what you're talking about. Um, because I'm trying to say, hey, I've got insights for physics and philosophy and, and uh, you know math and things like that. But I was so ignorant in 2001, I had no idea what the Euler identity was. Uh, I, I, and it turns out that it has meaning. I discovered it in 2003 that it even existed. Um, so th that's a yes, you could say, well, I'll turn off the video. I don't care about this guy anymore then if you didn't know what the Euler identity was. Um, but it turns out that actually encountering the Euler identity based on what I did. Um, the, it's also important to note that the Euler identity is a special case of the Euler formula. This is the Euler formula, e to the i, in this case, t, standing for time. It could be x, it could be any number of variables, equals cosine of t plus i sine of t. Um, and when the pi, et equals pi, if t were to equal pi, uh, then you get e equals negative one because cosine of pi. Uh, is negative one, and then you get the other thing factors out, and then you get, so e to the pi i 
equals negative one or e to the pi i plus one equals zero. So it's a special case of the Euler formula. Um, and that's, uh, and I, like I said, I didn't know anything about those things um, when I uh, encountered uh, the Euler uh, identity, but it's worth noting that the, this equation is seen by many as unbelievably important. The Euler formula is used in quantum mechanics uh, a lot. Um, and uh, Richard Feynman called it uh, one of the most remarkable, uh, almost astounding formulas of all mathematics uh, because it grounds a, a path called phase vectors, uh, essentially uses the Euler identity and well, really the Euler formula to measure the way in which the interaction between the operators that are looking at events influence the events. And that's kind of what you see in this picture sort of on the outside, you have an operator that creates a particular um, uh, context to observe the input output processes of a field. And the Euler formula affords a mathematical articulation for how to get the probability wave of the intersection of the measurement with the event. Um, and that's really the embedded mathematics of, uh, or at least that's a path to mathematical analyses of quantum mechanics and the intersection between measurement and event is, is achieved through the Euler formula. So that's the third kind of piece of, of awareness uh, and uh, you know, sort of at least background. Um, the final fourth piece is this thing called the equivalency. Uh, and the equivalency is this two pi i f thing. And I arrived at this formula in 2001. Um, and like I said, I didn't have any idea about the Euler identity or anything else. Um, and it relates to the way the tree of knowledge system frames uh, the relationship between human mathematical physical observer knowers <laughs> and the real physical behaviors in the universe. That's what it does. Um, and the, it, the equivalency is not meant as a traditional mathematical equation. Okay? Uh, that is, it's not supposed to say, oh, you can now take these variables and then go and apply them in a particular way. It's a specific meaning uh, in a specific context. And particularly what it really represents is a metaphysical representation that forms a doorway that links many different forms of thought together. Mathematics, human subjectivity, third-person empiricism, quantum mechanics, and uh, radiation. Those are basically the, especially. Uh, and what that affords then is a particular associative network of equivalency. Um, when I saw this, basically the short story, and this one we won't go any further in this particular presentation, essentially the, the, the punchline is that when I developed the two pi if, what it meant to me was, uh, this is a symbol of the mathematical operations, okay, that physicists have built to create equivalencies between observer-observed relations. That's a, that is essentially what it's supposed to mean. So I essentially hypothesized that. So the meaning of the equivalency is, oh, I actually figured out a way, um, or at least through the tree of knowledge, looking at physics and, and knowers through the tree of knowledge, I basically factored out in the empirical world. And after I'd factored out the empirical world, I left behind these mathematical representations. Mm -hmm. And then what's interesting is that this mathematical representation essentially predicts, well, these should be the kind of mathematical operators that should undergird physics. And then the cool thing was I stumbled across the Euler identity or Euler formula and was like, oh, that is exactly right. <laughs> I basically intuited the existence of the Euler identity and formula. 
um, through this process. And that is exciting from the vantage point of at least this, my worldview, is that that sort of um, creates a particular opportunity. Yeah, that is exciting. And, you know, I understand you, when we talked before, you said some physicists, you know, gave you some resistance to this framing. Um, but yeah, I'm thinking of, of Wilbur's calculus, which to me doesn't have the same level actually of sophistication of what you're talking about here, but he developed what he called a calculus. And of course, mathematicians were pretty quick to respond that what he developed doesn't function like a calculus at all. Um, it is a notational, uh, kind of a me metaphysical math-like notational system to capture complex ideas in, in a compact form. Exactly. And I think you've done that also, but I think there's a, a very suggestive relationship to an actual very profound mathematical formula. Um, so I think that's encouraging, even if, you know, the way you framed it didn't land in, you know, strictly in the mathematicians, totally. physical, phys you know, physicists and mathematicians circle. Yep. I think it captured an insight um, that maybe was an application of the Euler identity outside of its typical field of application. <laughs> totally. I, I appreciate that. I deeply appreciate that. And ultimately, uh, because I am a psychologist and because I am, uh, what I'm trying to do here is create bridging. I actually, at the end of this whole thing, I actually talk about the various interpretations and one I call the anti-inquivalency interpretation. The anti-equivalency is this is fucking bullshit. <laughs> I mean, you know, the things don't work. It doesn't work. It doesn't commute. It's not traditional math. Enriquez is trying to make a connection between one of the greatest mathematicians of all time through this equivalency. He doesn't even fucking speak math. It's absurd and it should be rejected strongly. Okay. So that's the what I call the anti-equivalency justification. And it's right. There is a way in which that from traditional mathematical structures and systems of justification, that's actually correct. Okay. And that should be appreciated. That's not like something I'm defending against. Mm -hmm. And it's the case that 150 slides later, after all three presentations, my argument would be, I just walk somebody through a network of association between so many different concepts that aligns their proper relation, that it is damn impressive. <laughs> <laughs> you know, And that you then have to say, well, all of the associations that I just walked you all through are meaningless. You know, and, and, and by the way, I'm saying right up front that this isn't a traditional mathematical language. So you're applying a particular criteria from an institutional language game that I immediately acknowledge to be not valid. You know, that's mm -hmm. not the rock proper interpretation. And what I basically argue is that there's a synthesis, but if we can figure out a way between the Henricus believes this is true and valuable, and the institution would say this is meaningless and bullshit, there's actually somewhere I think will be a synthesis in relationship to these two belief junctures that will afford deep insight. That's ultimately the conclusion, is that actually the knowledge of both the justification of why it's valid and, and we should invest in it and why we shouldn't affords a thesis antithesis potential synthesis that ultimately is shining the light that I wanna shine the light towards. Because it's, So it's definitely not something that we should be afraid of or defensive about or feel, yep, nope, that's, and how the hell does what follow make any sense then? Or why is it valuable? You know? um, so anyway, that's a, I'm, I'm definitely want to be clear that I appreciate that what would be a traditional critique. And it's, this thing is, I knew this was right when I saw it at some level, and then it's driven me 
into cumulative knowledge jump after cumulative knowledge jump. So that gives me good, at least individual belief uh, that I was, my intuition was right. Hmm. So what is actually represented? Well, if we do take two pi, that's a circle. Uh, we take F, uh, that's two have circles uh, in that regard. Uh, then there's the imaginary dimension and it's orthogonal to the real dimension. So it creates this. So essentially it's a circle and a frequency on an imaginary and real dimension. Right? Why does that equal one? I initially developed my justifications for why that equaled one, okay? But ultimately here's, this is a mathematical representation of the Euler formula <laughs> and the Euler formula E pi I plus one equals zero. Um, and one of the things that the early mathematicians told me as being nonsensical is that I had a time dimension in here. This is actually frequency of oscillation per second. That's where the F is. That's what it comes from. Uh, you know, I, I'm not going to get into where it comes from, but it's the frequency of oscillation per second on one side of the equation versus one on the other side of the equation. So the, originally the mathematicians immediately looked at us like, well, you have, you have a unit, a time unit on one side of the equation and no time unit on the other side of the equation. Okay, so that's, so you're wrong, you can't. Well, then I found the Euler identity. Well, this is a particular, <laughs> this is the Euler identity representation or a reasonable Euler identity interpretation. Okay, and what that means, look, it's, it's the exact same, well, this is a spiral here, uh, which actually is an interesting thing, but this graphic and this graphic, this is, and so that I found an idealized proof, okay, that has what many people afford the opportunity to create a time a circling time dimension within it. Well, okay. Well, if it you know that then that that was one of the things that I used to say. Yes, I knew that any normal mathematician would call that stupid, but I know that I'm seeing something. Well, lo and behold, here's a perfect proof that has an intuitive time dimension, depending on how you define time or or or, or cyclical process. So that was one of the cool things that. Um, so and then ultimately then. Okay, um, there's the parallel. Um, the, so the, the basic trail of thought starts with this thing called the equivalency, okay? It then finds its way um, into the Euler identity. And then it's like, oh my gosh, when I learned about, as soon as I saw it, what happened, my wife brought home this book called Where Mathematics Comes From uh, by Lakoff. And, and Nunez, um, mm -hmm. it's a fascinating book. The last hundred pages are um, an application of their ideas. It's their cognitive science and mathematician. And it's essentially how the human mind generates mathematical things. And then they do an idea analysis, mathematical idea analysis on the Euler identity. And it shows the history of concepts of algebraic, well, first addition concepts and line concepts and geometric concepts and then change concepts and then all of these concepts over time that got juxtaposed together to create a network, which John would call a mathematical psychotechnology, you know? Um, and then as I trailed, I was like, oh, those are exactly the conceptual operators <laughs> that I was uh, in, intuiting as being present if we factored everything, if we factored out at the human knower as an entity, you know, scientists knowing about like photons, you factor that out, you're left with logical identity relations. That's the whole idea. And at some level that's commonsensical, but the way I got there was inverted from many other places. So to get there through a totally different line. So that was the original merger. And ultimately that gives rise to then 
the, my intuition was to then substitute, and I didn't really understand this relation, but I was like, well, if this equals one and that equals one, I can substitute. And then this affords me what I call the radical mathematical humanistic equation. And I, I basically arrived at that was when I realized that I could take the mathematician's critique and basically that makes no sense and agree with it, but put adjacent to it, well, how much, how can I see all this other stuff anyway? And now can we create a synthesis across the rejection of it as no, keep it away to actually know it's a pathway into something good. And that's what, and, it, and it create, I called it a radical mathematical humanistic equation because <laughs> it was sort of like a fuzzy logic of adjacency. It was like, yeah, okay, fair enough. And, and look at this, you know, it's like, a, you can't just dismiss on the grounds of pure mathematical language. Sure. But this is a radical mathematical humanistic equation. You know? um, and so I use that. And then in 2017, um, ultimately, I built what gave the iQuad path. Um, and the iQuad path fundamentally is what ultimately gives rise to the iQuad formulation. And that was this idea that I really, I made some linkages afforded me my subjective justifying space with this thing as making the connection between two pi i f equals one, okay? Um, and then backed up and said, well, if I afford the idea that i quad equals one, okay, and that's, again, I'd have to explain some of the leap inches that I made, I could then draw a line, a radical mathematical humanistic line of contigu uh, continuum uh, across identities that then afforded a very, very powerful matrix of understanding. That was the, and so essentially then you get this equivalency and then the emergence of the iQuad okay, as, as a coin that then represents subjective fields on the one hand, okay, and mathematical fields on the other, all right? It's like, it's because all of a sudden it was like, well, I could put together where and factor out where was the subjective ideographic. And at the same time, kind of like Henricus Cartesian coordinates, it was also like, well, no, there's also a mathematical relation in here too that's entangled, okay? Um, and, that's, and that's what the iQuad coin ultimately affords is an entanglement between this mathematical unit circle and the human identity. And it's that entanglement then. And ultimately then what you get is you get this identity, identity, equivalency frame. The identity, identity, equivalency frame starts with, well, you have this, that's what, and that's what I'll be diving into some today is this human identity equivalency. It's like, oh, here's the human identification matrix and the unit circle, and I'm gonna entangle those into a weird adjacency. There is the Euler identity, okay, which we can say, hey, it's Euler and his, his great mathematician, one of the greatest things that he did was this thing. <laughs> so here he is, his subjectivity generating this okay, and the formula, which is a, on the bottom. This graph then creates, this is a unit circle with the Euler identity placed on top of it, okay, which is, this is just, and that's what the Euler identity is. It's a, actually, it's a version of the unit circle with the natural logarithmic algorithmic uh, change function placed in it. Um, and so this is totally, that's just an interesting mathematical representation. So now all you have here is just an interesting association between this human identity function represented as a coin and standard strict mathematical beauty. Um, and there's nothing to really debate there. It's just, it's basically, oh, I'm making an association. Here's a cool matrix. And then the kicker is the affordance of pulling this equivalency, my equivalency that I generated 
And I had generated this equivalency through the way the tree of knowledge places human scientific knowers on a complexification, evolutionary complexification grid that starts with Big Bang and goes from the physical energy to the material, living, mental, cultural. And that's where I got that from. So now what you have is you have the human identity, the Euler identity, the equivalency, which is connecting to the formula and this frame. And it is this synthesis, ultimately, it's the synthesis of these parts that I believe is, gives rise to a descriptive metaphysics that would afford a unified mathematical, physical, material, mental, cultural, empirical field theory. That's the, and, and if we get that, yeah, that's, 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 that's worth, that's a good weekend's worth. <laughs> <laughs> well, you get a gold star for the weekend to pull that off over the weekend. <laughs> so that's the, that's the basic, you know, architecture of the whole system. And I decided I'd try to, um, you know, upfront that, uh, because I didn't do that with John because I had to get into a lot, but I, since you had some of the background and stuff, I, so I, I wanted to start there and see if you have any reactions to that. And then I'll do a little bit dialogue on the human identity function. I have one intuitive thing coming up that I'm shy to mention. Okay. One, because I really am fairly mathematically illiterate, though I do appreciate that book by uh, Lakoff and Nunez. That's, that's ah. quite an interesting book. And I like their philosophy in the flesh and what they're, they're doing. Um, what's in my mind, and I don't know mathematically the full implications of um, the Euler identity. and But I'm thinking of something like Kitaro Nishida's concept of contradictory identity. Okay. And uh, it is a kind of like intense, it's, it's, it's an adjacency model where there's this mm -hmm. intensification of the bringing together of total opposites. And I see your coin as a kind of representation of basically of the zero and the one of the of the field and the point of total yeah That's so beautiful i'm i'm sensing that and, and thinking that maybe uh you know nishida has some language and some framings that are interesting uh for you know you know unpacking some elements of what you're talking about that at least would register in my brain that has you know training more in the zen and, and the buddhist and other kinds of things but um that's a beautiful yeah. association beautiful okay i mean it's great I, I need to learn more about that i don't know enough about that um but the ultimate frame of the equivalency okay is this is a special case of an observer identifying what i call a single frequency photon okay a single frequency photon photon just has one loop in it all right that one loop is a can be measured from kinetic energy perspective as the planck einstein relation is called e equals hf okay and then what I discovered is that there's uh, the Born-Heisenberg-Jordan matrix mechanics equation, uh, which PQ minus QP equals H over two pi I times the identity matrix. Anyway, the, in the special case of the single frequency photon, the measured information is aligned and equivalent with the kinetic energy, okay? So you have kinetic behavior and measured behavior create an, an identity. And what that means is then it's the identity of the no, measured observing knower. So a human knower all the way up top as a subjective field of this piece of information. And on the flip side, it's an identification with the kin ontic 
kinetic energy that you never actually see, but you can only, you see through information, okay? But this is a special case where the actual kinetic energy equals the information measured. So mm -hmm. a, that's the uniqueness of the identity. So you normally are just, and normal physics, classical physics was, <clears throat> oh, you could always observe shit without influencing. It would always be, you'd never, anything, you never had to entangle <clears throat> the observer. You could always get the observer out of the equation. And of course we learned in common chemistry, that's not the case. What this says is actually where the observer becomes the energy. <laughs> there is a special case at the smallest action unit <clears throat> at the quantum Planck's constant. And it's in the formulas and you just drop it down. It's like, and the physicists, when they show them, it's like, yeah, that, what does that mean? It's like, well, from my vantage point, <laughs> that means that I made an identification between the human observer equivalent to the simplest thing in the universe, the photon, a single frequency photon. Mm -hmm. And so in terms of, you know, making identities between contradictory entities that are making equivalencies between contradictory entities, what's more contradictory at some level, we're the most complex thing in the universe. Well, mm -hmm. sorry, from, sorry from all the other things that are more complex, but <laughs> I'll leave that. For, but if we're the most complex observers, this is a special case of that contradictory identity coming together on two sides mm -hmm. of the corner. So that's a, why I would say, yeah, that intuition. I'm glad that came sparkled up. I need to learn more about that. Uh, frame. Good. I, I I think that you know there's this. It it's also something that I think began to sparkle up in Bhaskar's work and mm -hmm. Hmm. made him take a few associational steps that led some of his colleagues to think he had jumped the shark. Right. Um, but that's where his logic led him was to this kind of non-duality of observer observed um, that really opened him up to a whole wider wisdom sphere and what he began to unpack as meta-reality instead of just his critical realism. Totally. Um, was following the logic totally implicit within the Listen, critical I, I, realism. I'm, right, I see Bashkar like falling in a tunnel and I'm like right behind him. <laughs> like, I tipped into the tunnel also. I, I'm getting that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, it's, yeah, it's exactly. And that's what it fundamentally it is also. It's an, and the other thing that's interesting about the equivalency is that I believe that underneath matter, we can think about, and physics basically teaches this, underneath it all, the best way to describe the ontic is an energy information field. Mm -hmm. And quantum field theory and Big Bang singularity stuff, super force, everything collapses into a particular bosonic energy force, um, both of those points are underneath matter, there's an energy information field. And then we're creating a non-dual observer-observed equivalency. I'm an energy information field, and that's an energy information field, and we're having contact at mm -hmm. the right singular level. And then mm -hmm. when you have that one is many, many, one, you know, fusion, then you're like, oh, then the ego breaks and you go beneath and you, you go pre and post trans justificatory. And then you right. have the wisdom meta reality awakening. Right, right. Beautiful, man. That's what we need, man. We need the wisdom meta reality awakening, Bruce. <laughs> now the question is how, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> that I don't know. But anyway, that's it. So, all right. Uh, a few more. We're obviously not going to get super far into this because I just, you know, it's so fun talking with you. We get stuck in all this other stuff. It's beautiful. So, anyway. Um, so that's the basic part that I wanted to sh share, okay? So the other thing that I wanna talk a little bit about is what I went over with John, at least the, I'm gonna shift gears a little bit 
Um, and then basically like, okay, let's, let's sit with this human identity function at a common, a relatively common sense level. Um, because the argument is, is that we can enrich the field at the level of human identity uh, function, and then we can enrich the field then down the road into physics and then return back to say meta-reality wisdom. And it is that juxtaposed in a relation. So we have to set, situate the field in terms of the human identity function. Um, the overarching picture then is the Utah picture is the tree, the coin. And this by the way is two pi i f uh, symbol, this little black circle with the frequency. It's, a, it's gonna connect the frequency of observed behavior with observer and uh, create equivalency there. And um, I'm gonna do that through what I call the rotation. Uh, the rotation on the coin is that creating that identity matrix so that observer, observer, and then in placed in the agent arena identity matrix relation. And then that's gonna go then all the way down to physics uh, and in a particular way, making consonant phenomenology and physics, or at least that's the goal. And then from the there you get the, my thing's not working super well, um, the flip into ought. Okay, so you rotate and flip, you flip the coin, and then the so you identify with right relationship with what that is, and then you metabolize that into right relationship with what ought to be, and then so the, and that's the wisdom energy relation. So that this uh, the flip into ought is the picture of the garden underneath the elephant sun god. The elephant sun god's the ultimate irony, which we can just pull from divinity. Not I certainly can't experience supermind. Um, I can experience some uh, if we use the greater good to, I, you know, I, I can, I have felt over mind and I felt the light from supermind. I don't know what that is first person. <laughs> you know, that's where my level of ego development is, but I can, at least I can feel the light coming off of it. We'll put it that way. Um, so uh, this, you know, uh, I think this affords a particular kind of way to frame is ought and the way to frame science, the subject of human knower and wisdom. So, in terms of the place and meaning of the coin, then um, the first thing is that it symbolizes this uh, human identity function, and and at the same time, this gets into the argument about philosophy of science. It's a placeholder for the unique subjective knower, which is fundamentally absent or blind in natural behavioral science uh, language systems. And then it, uh, the goal of the coin, if to then sort of deepen that, is to orient the subject toward primate and person no, modes of being and knowing. Um, it symbolizes the human humanity dialectic, symbolizes the unity multiplicity dialectic, and then represents part of the solution to the digital identity problem. And so these are all of the various, you know, that, that's the, the goal now of sort of like, okay, what I'm trying to do here in this basic thing is I'm trying to, you know, like locate it, the coin, say, in relationship to John's point about the meaning crisis. Okay, so it's like, there's a coin in relationship to who I am. And then I want to create a clear set of fields that, that afford ease of communication with, yeah, that's how I make sense out of my, you know, I have, I have perceptions in the world, I have actions in the world, I have desires, I have beliefs and propositional thoughts. That makes good sense. And then it's the sort of the larger world of the context that we find ourselves in. And then how to connect my subjective ideographic with those larger things in a way that affords, um, well, positive opportunity. So I'm going to uh, we'll be pretty quick on this because we just spent time on this. So this is the human identity function, describes a descriptive metaphysical frame for both physical, um, material, mental, living, mental, and then ethical space. 
And then there's the, here's the rotation and flip in relationship to the garden. So the, 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 the H human, and then rotate to identity. Okay. That rotation is going to actually, one way to think about that is that gets you to the left side is going to orient your human identity function and then place it in relationship to the situation we find ourselves in, uh, both socially and say physically relative to the universe, and then flip it, which is then say, okay, I want right wise relation to is and all. So the rotation orients towards is, I rotate and create an identity matrix of what is, and then I flip to then be oriented to what ought to be. Aspir and creating an aspirational identity um, between, John would call it sort of your liminal, uh, imaginal space, essentially. It's sort of like, what's the potential of being and becoming uh, that I might afford in the future? You know, so you, yeah, go that, ahead. that little paragraph is so rich with information. Could you just pause on this paragraph yeah, about the frequency? Absolutely. And uh, yeah, give an example or really just, you know, unpack sure. some of that a little bit. Absolutely. Okay, so the frequency of the rotation and the flip of the coin creates a positional alignment and then aspirational identity between the experiencing subject first in the physical world and then in relationship to wisdom, okay? Uh, so what do I mean? Uh, so, so now the rotation is, hey, I wanna help. Here, here's a way to download an operating system and put on your glasses and rotate them to afford you an opportunity to see the world through a particular lens, okay? Uh, and the lens that I'm gonna then afford is first, your common sense view of yourself, okay? So you're a named person <laughs> and go around and solve problems uh, and have problems, right? And have desires uh, and beliefs and perform actions. Uh, and so that's your normal state and it will relate to you in your normal state and then it will try to afford a lens to see the world scientifically through what is and to create a field of right relation of what is scientifically and is subjectively. That's the rotation. One way to think about this in terms of I quad is to say, hey, okay, here's a unit circle sort of mathematically, I to the fourth. I'm going to then sort of, okay, I'll invite myself to connect to the tree of knowledge and then I'll be, oh, I'll see the world as energy and matter and life and mind and culture. So that then is a lens like, oh, I'm a culture person. My dog Benji is a, um, is a mental creature. Uh, my plant uh, is a living creature and the earth, well, the earth's complicated. The moon is a rock uh, and, uh, and a material creature. Um, and then the universe begins as an energy singularity. Okay, So that would be four dimensions of complexity on top of an energy. We should, according to the tree of knowledge, everyone, or it invites basically everybody to just have, that should be our walking around metaphysical map of complexification. And then the argument is, is well, given that reality, what is the meta wise vision that we would want to afford? And how might we then be with what is and to be effectively oriented to what ought to be? Uh, and the garden underneath the elephant sun god is the um, icons for wisdom, basically. And that is reflecting on values in a Sophia sort of way, meaning a love of wisdom and deep 
intellectual knowledge into wisdom thought and embodying that in terms of phrenesis. In fact, there are little two little bees here. Uh, one is the basically a phrenesis bee, this little wick W bee. This is, hey, be a good character and do good things in the world um, at the, in, in the embodiment of being. And this is sort of the Sophia bee, the wick, uh, wicked wisdom bee is like, it symbolizes, oh, how do we build good knowledge systems that are ethically grounded, that are accurate, that are sensitive, uh, et cetera. So it's knowledge and wisdom. So that's the, that is the, the goal. And that can get symbolized with the aligning with the frequency of what is. And it goes all the way down to the frequencies of photons. It creates this deep identity net between me as a subject of knower, knowing about science, and the frequency of a single frequency photon. It creates an energy information net there to see what is, and then um, afford the flip into what ought to be. And that rotation flip function is a way to capture the is, ought, self, world, future relation. So, um, and so then the extension of this is that, well, the first thing is, yeah, it just, just represents. So one way to capture the representation is put a person's picture uh, on there. Um, and so, you know, my version, Bruce's version, your version, who's ever listening, your particular, uh, I often refer to yourself as your epistemological portal, it means your unique way of knowing about the world. Um, and weird thing about consciousness, we basically get one portal, <laughs> and at least at a perspective level, we're sort of locked into it, and, and there, I uh, really can't see anybody else's portal, but that's all another. Um, uh, but the enlightenment split the first person subjective qualitative experience of being from the third person objective measurement. And this, this split of empiricism, I think, is underappreciated um, that we should be, I mean, certainly people talk about it, but the profundity of the split between third person behavioral empiricism and first person phenomenological empiricism um, and the difficulty in creating a metaphysics that reconciles those is uh, one of the great challenges. I call this, or an aspect of this, is the, this is an aspect of the enlightenment gap. And the Utah tries to bridge this. So, um, and that, is, so I'm not gonna spend too much time on the enlightenment gap. We've talked about that. Um, but if you have any questions, essentially it's this um, argument that, hey, we had, in some ways, better holistic versions of, of models of mind with um, the pre-Socratic and Socratic philosophers, especially Plato gives an interesting model um, of the way the mind works that I certainly use today in terms of appetitive, emotional, logical, I even reference that, and ultimately spiritual mind. Uh, Aristotle's frame for the vegetative, sensitive, and rational souls correspond very closely to life, mind, and culture on the tree of knowledge. Uh, and Tree of Knowledge just adds core joint points to the evolutionary synthesis, behavioral investment theory, and justification system theory to frame that and sort of update it. And we lost basically Aristotle's metaphysics. And we did that because Galileo rightfully criticized some of the scholastic metaphysical excesses that were happening at the time. And they weren't grounded in particular ways. Um, and he also, well, he, you know, his weird relationship with the church, but ultimately sets the stage for removing formal and final causes uh, leaving behind the efficient and material causes. Uh, and in so doing, and Galileo and Newton were both very clear on this, we're not really talking about mind. Uh, we, maybe Descartes' right, maybe others are right, uh, but they knew they were talking about classic matter in motion, um, the evolution of life, mind, culture, types of stuff were seen as a different kind of problem. Um, but the physical sciences got dominant and they got very powerful. 
Um, and of course, there was a fundamental shift in worldview and the need for empirical science, first with Copernicus into Galileo, um, who was really the father of modern science. And then of course we get Newton, laws of motor, motion, that fundamentally changed the game. And the matter in motion, classical mechanical universe, deterministic and reductionistic becomes increasingly powerful for the hard-nosed ways to understand the world. Um, we get Descartes dividing mind and matter into two different substantial worlds. And then that becomes the part of the enlightenment gap that says, well, what is the proper relationship between mind and matter? And we never are able to put this together. We get the empiricist, uh, primary versus secondary quality distinction. Um, primary are things that exist in the world. Secondary is the experience that we have of them. So you see sort of an initial break here. This would be primary would be more third person empiricism. Uh, and uh, secondary is first-person empiricism. Finally, we get a manual, well, not finally, but in terms of really what I think what happened to a psychology, at least, uh, we get a manual Kant, uh, and the, he synthesizes um, and gives rise to the phenomenological, epistemological view of the categories of mind. The human mind generates a particular phenomenological structure. Um, but ultimately, what we then are handed down, in my estimation, is a Newtonian materialistic ontology, it's the world's physical out there. In a Kantian epistemology, humans creates phenomenological categories of mind to know about it. The Kantian epistemology evolves into the scientific epistemological method, and we basically have scientific materialism. But inside of that, there is no proper metaphysical system for helping understand human subjectivity, uh, how it emerges, evolves out of the world, and how it functions to map back onto the physical world in proper relation. So in the tree of knowledge relative to the coin provides ultimately a frame that then also allows us to orient towards a wise meta-reality. <laughs> I wanna keep using Bashkar. And that's the flip. All right, so I'm gonna stop there uh, and uh, I can feel my little, uh, it's probably good for me to uh, bring this to a little bit of a close in terms of my own space from yesterday. <laughs> Feeling a little tense in the backside here. Um, so I had a little flare up yesterday. So let's bring this to a close. And I really appreciate, uh, I know it's maybe a little abrupt, but I think that'd be helpful in terms of, we covered a lot of ground in some ways that I didn't cover. Um, what I'd like to do though, is uh, before we do that, is just to sort of get your flavor or reflections about what you're seeing as this thing unfolds. Uh, and what from an, you know, I'm so deep in this, I'm having a hard time sometimes seeing like, well, what's the proper zone of proximal development for other people? Um, like John had a really nice thing framing. He was like, oh, two things he said. Uh, one was like, hey, you probably need a manual, okay? Like how to interpret this that's properly developmentally situated. And maybe one thing to get that you're after is like this a talisman of transformation, he framed it as. It was like, oh, you know, that resonated. Um, so uh, basically my question for you is, you know, I, I deeply appreciate your comment about sort of contradicting identities. Your uh, integral post-metaphysical frames on prepositions, layman's adjacency, metaphysics is, is salient. What thoughts do you have, if any, in relationship to this emerging psychotechnology and what would be the best uh, questions you have or best or ideas or brainstorms for what to do with it? <laughs> there are a couple things that are on my mind from that you know, last portion of your presentation. Try to pull them together in a clear way. One of which is uh, you could say 
Kant's own kind of Copernican revolution, mm-hmm. yep. where he showed, you know, that what we see, you know, Copernicus showed that, you know, what mm. we observe out in the world is in part due to the condition of the observer. Yep. Um, and Kant did that, saying that what we observe in a sense is the product of the pre-existing categories, structures, filters totally. of the human mind. So we perceive the world as ordered by human consciousness. Yep. But he presupposed that there were some constants mm. in terms of, of human uh, categories and filters yeah. that subsequently we have discovered are not really as constant mm. as he presupposed. And that's the whole kind of postmodern turn nice. where it, it brings us into a bit more of a, a floaty and soupy relativism because, <laughs> you know, now we have subjectively mediated um, phenomena, but yeah. not a kind of grounding. Yes. And I think Bhaskar was wanting to wrestle with and address that lack of groundedness. Totally. And what Which I, I think he, he did brilliantly, by the way, I love his epistemic fallacy analysis of Kant. It really is. It was striking and moving and, and, and uh, moved me forward in my thinking about ontology and epistemology in proper relation, as opposed to um, I was vulnerable, sort of having this Kant Newtonian split in my head and Bashkar builds bridges with critical realism in deep ways. So I'll just make it that's just a side commentary that I know you know, but for people that are listening, uh, you may not. Definitely. Yeah, and no, I, I agree. And, and it's, I think Bhaskar needs to be much more widely digested. It's unfortunate that he is as difficult to read as, you know, some, some other people who have a lot to say. <laughs> um, but in terms of the, the aligning with the, you know, the, the frequency and the flip that is afforded by that, um, as I'm understanding what you're laying out there is that the alignment with what is is facilitated by certain kinds of metaphysical framings that you know like the the tree of of knowledge and in the larger model that you're building that that can facilitate a deeper perception of what is which then can afford um a the move towards the ought, the move towards, um, you know, wisdom from a deeper alignment with, with what is. Yes. And, you know, Hume, of course, said you can't get from the is to the ought, right? Um, Bhaskar has challenged that. And knowing the position of a photon, you know, doesn't really tell you anything about what to do. It doesn't, it doesn't have any moral impact in that regard but you know Bhaskar argued at least at the social domain and and higher um the right kind of perception of what is which can help you cut through uh you know the uh uh, basically false consciousness and demi-reality um that can help you then move towards the ought through the clear perception of the distortions in the f- social field. 
for instance. So what I'm picking up on, and I'd like to know if that's, if I'm missing something or if that's clear is that what you're presenting is, you know, through your model, uh, a way of getting clear on what is that can kind of cut through some of the social distortions in psychology, um, the, in the wake of the, you know, enlightenment turn, things like that, that once we can clarify that will then make the path of going forward and towards wisdom uh, and, and greater coherence of vision possible. Beautiful. That's exactly, thank you. Uh, that's a wonderful summary and exactly what I'm after. Uh, I'll give a couple of examples. So I, I love the Bashkar connection. That's exactly right. Um, uh, so, so to bring it back to Sri Aurobindo, for example, okay. Um, so at an, I would argue at a logos level, the realization that I am an energy information field and so is that photon as an is level, <laughs> that, that affords a particular kind of um, expansion of oneness that is, that's interesting and important. Um, and I think it's interesting and important in relationship to some of the misconceptions uh, that we have been given from the enlightenment understanding of what science says about man, <laughs> to use that intentionally. Um, so for example, Barry Schwartz gave a great articulation of what's called the battle for human nature uh, in a book called the human, Battle for Human Nature and, and basically said, hey, economic man and evolutionary selfish gene framing and behavioral man, all of them basically present an instrumental, rational, self-interested creature, okay? That's it's driven by hedonism, driven by genes, driven by cost-benefit analysis for the rational self-interest of, of the being. I don't think that's an accurate scientific view of, is, of what is at all to be the case. Um, one of the points that I highlight on a number of things, you may have heard this, but I'll just say it again, is I, I initially sort of had that frame and it's, it's indicative of like what's the influence matrix, social influence. Social influence is a pragmatic instrumental, when you think about it as a resource, how much can I move other people in accordance with my interests? So it's pragmatic, influential. After all, that's what actually puts food on the table, gets you mates, uh, gets you good position and status. And that's fair. But at the same time, I realized clinically, oh my God, many people have social influence, but they feel like imposters. They're around people they don't value. They don't feel known and valued and they're miserable in that regard, okay? They are, we get taught to use now, shift, shift that over to like John Verveke and interpretation of Fromm. We don't have our instrumental capital, you know, productivity domain is just shining us a light on competitive, acquisition of consumer production modes of being, having and doing, having and doing, okay? They don't afford us clarity with deep authenticity about being and becoming modes. Those are weakly acknowledged. And then either, well, you just make it up because we know what science tells us is real, but it's, you know, you can bullshit yourself. We get just massive weak tea. That's just wrong. That is not the right way to see the human condition. It's not hyper self-centered. It's not totally focused on hedonism. Anybody that would work really hard to climb to the top of Mount Everest can tell you it's not about hedonism. You know, there are a lot of other motives that drive people in relation. And so 
we, I think we have discovered a huge amount that afford us the opportunity to get right relation of energy, matter, life, mind, culture, and see ourselves as justifying apes who may be able to find right relation with something higher. And that, that is the accurate isness. Um, and then in relationship to ought, and the last thing I'll say is I have a, used to have a saying about this whole is ought thing. I was like, can, i.e. what can be, exist between is and ought. Okay. So the idea that there's a fundamental, yes, I agree with Hume that you cannot derive from is to ought in a formal deductive or inductive logical line. Fair enough. But to say that they're not related is, is absurd. I mean, that's ridiculous. Every, every individual is an investment valuing, justifying, influencing creature who is soaked in value. <laughs> that's all what we do. It's mediated by our own value. Um, and what is the case relative to what ought to be the case sets the stage for well, that in between is what can, what can we do? Um, and so right relation with what is, is crucial to how we think about what we can be. And that's the other point is that the enlightenment screwed us over and, and, you know, I mean, no pointing fingers, but it, the meta reality and the greater psychology that's appointed to by Sri Aurobindo into Wilbur and into Roy Bashkar, without any ontological claims, that's absolute, from my vantage point as a natural scientist now on this side of the, there's just no doubt that that is the right, that's the actual is, not some fluffy frame of reference. I mean, you know, we can get into ultimate spiritual realities, that's debatable, but to the potential of what feeds the human soul and that there is a first person soul relative that is seeking to be valued and have purpose and meaning, the data are crystal clear that that's right. That's what it is. It seeks larger meaning. That's how nature built us. Um, so we better get right relation with what science tells us. Uh, and we need to do it actually fast. Because, <laughs> I mean, you know, look around. Uh, so that's the, so yeah, if we have an appreciation for the human identity matrix that we're actually in, um, actually it's good news ultimately, because it, it tells us it's a very hopeful message that speaks much more to I think the human soul experience in a way that demonstrates that the human soul experience is pointing something with value and we can get right relation with what it is. And then we will be much better suited uh, to orient to what ought to be with consequences on the back half of this century. Beautifully put. Yeah, that's, so. that's, that's great. So yeah, I, I sense the echoes there are with our own concerns in the sacred naturalism series right, about exploring. Totally. Yeah. Um, basically it's really, uh, you know, a naturalistic humanistic and broader concern um, to get into right relationship with as much clarity as possible with what we know about the world and its patterns and its trends and its potentials. Exactly. All right. Beautiful. Yes. And it's a wonderful plug in and tie into our sacred naturalism conversations, which I've deeply enjoyed. And that's right. This is a, you know, it's a token of sacred naturalism for you frame it in that regard. So uh, maybe we'll ultimately circle back into that conversation and, and do so. So. All righty, friend. Well, uh, any other final thoughts as we bring into, as we wrap it up here? No, I just really enjoyed, you know, taking the journey with you. It really makes me regret my own lack of math skills. But beyond that, I think I grokked enough um, to appreciate your project and actually hope 
to um, take that step into the part two of this journey and unfolding. Great. Um, well, yeah, my, my son's a math major. Okay. So I, if I glance over his shoulder on whatever he's working on, I'm instantaneously shamed and he'll <laughs> immediately turn, God, you don't even know what an integral is. So it's like, uh, yeah, you know, so it is, I, I am hiding and I'm coming out with some of this stuff. So I want to be very clear. I empathize with all of that and I don't have any genuine deep. I know about these concepts. Some, uh, I don't know them deeply, but I have an angle on them that perhaps affords a different kind of clarity from a different mm -hmm. adjacency. And that might open up some possibilities. We'll see. Right. Right. All righty. All righty, friend. Thank you so much for joining me. Deeply appreciate it. This on special iQuad edition uh, with Bruce. Thank you. Wonderful.